I'm going to ask the church in Graniteville and Grays, those meeting in this building, live streaming somewhere, just to be still, bow your heads, close your eyes as we go to our Father, as we read His Scripture and go to His throne of grace. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Our Father, we thank you that when you make a promise, you keep it forever. That while not every person within the nation of Israel will be saved, you've nonetheless chosen the nation and all those who have exercised faith in the Messiah who was to come and the Messiah who has come will be with you in heaven. Thank you, our Father, that you have affirmed and underscored in our thinking through the written word that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That you have put your affection on Israel with an everlasting love. And we pray for Israel this morning. We ask for your mercy upon them in this war against unmitigated evil. We pray for your protection on those soldiers, many of whom are lost but who are seeking you for the first time calling on you in prayer. Thank you that you're preparing the nation for a great revival that is yet to come. We pray your protection over Jewish people across the planet, here in our own state and in the United States and those in our church. You keep them safe, that you would make their testimony for the Lord Jesus true and strong. And help us this morning as we open your word, a book given to us by Jewish men, from a Jewish Savior through a land that you will ultimately cultivate and culminate human history with. As we study this book, help us to have open hearts and minds to understand its truth. Thank you that you've given us the Spirit of God as our teacher, as our illuminator. May he take the word and quicken it to our hearts that we might understand it and make rightful application. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the prophet Malachi. If you are new to the Bible, if you find the first page in the New Testament, turn back a page and you will be in Malachi. Malachi was used of God as the final prophet before the coming of God's Messiah. The next prophet who would come in Israel's history is John the Baptist. But between Malachi and John the Baptist, there are 400 years of silence. And of course, uh, Malachi writes not only about the first coming of the Messiah, but as we will see in the fourth chapter, he looks down the corridors of time to the second coming, to the return of the Lord. And like all the prophets, 
Malachi was the voice of Israel's conscience. Among other things, they would certainly comfort the afflicted, but they would afflict the comfortable. And I suppose if there was an accent on this prophet's life, it would be on the latter, and that he highlights six specific sins that the people were guilty of. And he's not afraid to tell it like it is. And if we are not afraid to teach what God says about sin, then God will use us, because indeed the law of God is like a schoolmaster to lead us to faith. People have no need for forgiveness if they don't believe that the things that God says are sin are sin. And as we repeat the Scripture, it's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and God uses it to bring people to faith. Now, each of these six sins, as we've seen, is introduced by a series of statements. This is what God says, and then the people will say this. And so you see that oft-repeated phrase, but you say, or yet you say. Seven sets of questions to highlight six specific sins. But he doesn't leave them in despair. When we come to the fourth chapter, he'll look down the tunnels of time to that great and magnificent day when the Messiah will return a second time and he will rule and reign. But if you have been with us, maybe just for a brief review, as this chart indicates, there are six sins. It opened with them doubting God's love. God said, I loved you. And the people came back and said, how have you loved us? That was in Malachi 1 and in verse 2. Then we saw the second issue highlighted in Malachi 1 and verse 6, where they were despising God's name. We saw the name of God stands for his character. And they didn't really honor God as God. They brought blemished sacrifices that weren't even worthy of their king, of their governor, and yet they brought them to God. Then in Malachi 2.14, we dealt with the third sinful issue. And of course, they were debasing God's covenant. God calls marriage a covenant between two people. And they were blowing off this covenant, a covenant that was to represent in the Old Testament God as he describes Israel as his bride, and under the New Testament as God describes the church as his bride. The very model that God wanted to use through his people was being blown off and that they were divorcing their spouses. The fourth sinful issue is in Malachi 2.17. And it's the age-old question is, why does bad things happen supposedly to good people? And they were doubting God's justice, that God is really a just God. And then last time, if you were with us in Malachi 3 and verse 7, they were depleting God's storehouse. They were stealing from God. They were robbing God and that they were not giving him his tithes and his offerings. And in each of these cases, Malachi will show us that God's people are not only breaking God's law, but they are breaking God's heart. And he wants us to cherish what he has said, because what he has said for us is for our very, very best. Now we come today to the sixth issue in Malachi 3 and verse 13, where the people are depreciating God's service. They're saying it doesn't really pay to serve the Lord. After all, look at the pagans who aren't serving God, and they seemingly are blessed. We are serving God, and it just doesn't seem to pay off. Now remember, Malachi is not preaching simply for his day, but for our day. And that's certainly true, as we'll see. The Lord Jesus references prophet when we come to the fourth chapter. It's certainly true in that the Apostle Paul said, all Scripture is inspired, theos neustos, literally God-breathed. Scripture is the very breath of God, and all Scripture is profitable. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, 
He reminds them in the 15th chapter, for whatever was written in earlier times, that is referring to the Old Testament dispensation, was written for who? For our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He is simply reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament Scriptures did not expire with the Old Testament era. That they are just as applicable for us today as we let the New Testament interpret them for us. So with that said, we are beginning our text this morning where we left off, Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Follow along as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that, you, that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Again, today we are going to address the problem of depreciating God's service, looking down on serving the living God. These people had gone into a spirit of murmuring, of complaining. And of course, that's a serious, serious sin. Sometimes it's... Um, comes without a specific leader, it just seemingly starts in an assembly of people in a local church. Before long, people are murmuring and complaining to one another. Sometimes there's a specific leader or a group of leaders that start the murmuring and the complaining. We may think it's no big deal, but God views it as a critical issue. Hold your finger here. I'd like to illustrate both sides of how murmuring starts. Go to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers chapter 14. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book. Now, we get our titles for the first five books of the Bible from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. But remember, the book titles are not inspired by God any more than the chapter and verse divisions. The Jews call this book Bamadar, and it is a word that comes from the first sentence of the first verse in Numbers in the wilderness. And so it's dealing with the wilderness wanderings. Numbers chapter 13. Let me just set the historical context. Uh, if you remember, or Numbers 14, if you remember, um, God had given the people a promise that they would go into this land that it's inhabited by Canaanites. God waited for the iniquity of the Canaanites to be complete. This was a wicked people, a vicious people, much like Hamas and the people they butchered, hands they cut off, feet that they tore off little babies whom they burned alive, and on and on without going into any more detail. That's what the Canaanites were like. And God said, go in and wipe them out. And he promised that he would give them the land. And so Moses, if you remember, sent 12 spies into the land, not to see if they could take the land, but how they would take the land. And so there's this balance between divine sovereignty and promise and human responsibility. Look in Numbers, uh, actually look at Numbers 13 
And let's look at verse uh, 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they went on and came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So they reported to him and said, We came into the land where you sent us, and certainly, it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And indeed, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And so the majority report was a bad report. If you remember, they said we were like grasshoppers in their sight. But of the 12 spies, two spies had a minority point of view, Joshua and Caleb. And we read what they say here in verse 30. They believed God. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will certainly prevail over it. How did he know that? Because God had promised it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people because they are too strong for us. So they brought a bad report of the land which they had spied out to the sons of Israel, saying the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in the land are of great stature. And so did the people respond to God with faith, believing His promise? Unfortunately not. Look at Numbers 14 now, and notice, if you will, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised their voices and cried out, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the entire congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we had died in the wilderness. So why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Now this is an example of what we would call spontaneous complaining, where the people heard something, namely the report of the spies, and immediately the congregation begins to moan and they begin to groan. And of course, if you've read the rest of the record, God dealt with his people in a severe way. All those 20 years of age and up never saw the promised land. 19 and below went into the land of promise, with the exception, of course, of Joshua and Caleb, who believed the Lord. So approximately one million of the two million people who left Egypt never went in. They died in the wilderness during that 40 years. Now that's spontaneous complaining, no definitive leader. Turn over a few pages, if you will, to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16, where we find another kind of complaining, the kind of complaining that's incited by a single leader or sometimes by a group of leaders. In fact, if you put in the margin next to verse 1, the key leader of the three was a man named Korah, put out in the margin Jude 11 next to verse 1, because the book of Jude describes Korah as an unbeliever, as an apostate. The book of Jude is the only book in the New Testament totally dedicated to apostasy. Apostasy describes those people who say they follow the Lord, but then at some point they turn their back and they go in the opposite direction. 
And so Jude refers to the rebellion of Korah in verse 11 in that one chapter book. Now notice verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Eberam, the sons of Eliab, and the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men um, yourselves above took men yourselves above the assembly. I think I have a misprint there. Yeah, They stood before Moses, verse 2 says, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. So you've got this key man, his name is Korah, he's got two compatriots, and together they recruit 250 people. 250 leaders, men of renown, Moses describes them. Verse 3, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and said to them, you have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you, Moses, exalt yourselves, you and Aaron, above the assembly of the Lord? And Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Now this is an example where you have a leader and ultimately a group of leaders who get the people to bellyache. And so when a congregation belly aches, sometimes it's instigated by a particular individual. And of course, if you've read the account, death ensues. Read verses 8 through 10 this afternoon, but basically God says to the Levitical leaders, he said, you want to go in a direction contrary to Moses, whom God has appointed. And because of this, God says he's going to wipe them all out. But what does Moses do? If you remember, he pleaded with the Lord God. He said, are you going to wipe out an entire congregation because of 250 men and a handful of folks? You're going to kill the whole congregation? Well, we read now starting in verse 22. But they fell on their faces and said, God, the God of the spirits of humanity, when one person sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord, Yahweh here, spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the areas around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Eberam. Now drop down to uh, verse 28 and let's read what Moses did. Then Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things for it is not my doing. If these men die the death of all mankind or if they suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, we studied Sheol recently in our prophetic series, there's righteous Sheol where little children who are unaccountable and believers in the one true God go that was emptied out at the ascension. And then there's unrighteous Sheol, also called Hades, it's current day hell, we might say, that someday will be placed in the lake of fire. But here he's describing these men, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that is theirs, and they descend into Sheol. Then you will know that these men have been disrespectful to the Lord. And as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households and all the people, who belonged to Korah with all their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. 
that all Israel who were around them fled as their outcry and and they said, the earth might swallow us. And of course, God says in verse 250, I mean verse 35 of these 250, fire came down out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Wow, that's pretty sobering. The point is, is that God doesn't like complaining and grumbling. And the Apostle Paul highlights this particular event along with murder and adultery in 1 Corinthians 10. And he says that the sin of grumbling or complaining was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He said, this is an example that I am underscoring from God Almighty that you and I can learn from it. And sadly, sometimes the people just spontaneously will complain in an assembly in a local church. Or sometimes there's a leader or a group of leaders who begin to basically spread their poison and it destroys the congregation. And I've seen, sadly, in my lifetime, many at church, once great churches, and it only took a few people whose complaining and grumbling was left unchecked who ruined the church. And God took away their candlestick, their witness, their effectiveness. Some of you have come from churches just like that. And so the consequences are the same. We might not wander in a physical wilderness for 40 years, but if we become complainers and grumblers because we don't really see that it pays to serve the Lord, then we can walk in a spiritual wilderness out of fellowship with God. And so Malachi here in verses 13 through 15 deals with the sin of complaining, among other things. If you're using your note-taking outline, I want to begin with the complaint of the unfaithful, the complaint of the unfaithful. In verse 13, we find the same pattern we've seen all the way through the entire book in dealing with these specific sins. God lays out the charge against the people of Israel. The people respond and they say, you don't mean us, do you? And then God goes on to give a defense of the charge with the proper theological application. So God knows that right thinking or right theology always results in proper behavior. So there's the complaint of the unfaithful, and it begins with the charge by God. Notice, if you will, verse 13. God says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Now, please notice, he does not say your actions have been arrogant, but your words have been arrogant. Don't ever underestimate the sinful nature of even words. This word arrogant carries the idea of something that's bold or strong. The King James tries to capture it by rendering it stout. The New English Bible and the ESV say hard words. One popular paraphrase from the 1970s trying to catch the force of the Hebrew says, you have said terrible things about me. The Net Bible, which is a semi-literal translation, says you have criticized me sharply, says the Lord. So this Hebrew verb that Malachi uses is also the same word that God uses when Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. It denotes a certain stubbornness against the living Lord. And so the people had openly rebelled, and in one sense they were following the example of their forefathers by their complaints. So that's the charge by God. Secondly, there's the response of the people. There's the response of the people. 
God tells them they have spoken arrogantly, but they don't see it. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You you can't mean us. How have we been arrogant? So from their point of view, they're innocent, and the charges are not true about them. You know, I've noticed over the years as a pastor that people who are living in rebellion against God, ultimately, typically, they make themselves to be the victims. They really don't take ownership of their sin. And it's interesting here that sin, while it has a way of dulling our consciences and blurring our perspective, he uses a form of the Hebrew verb that means conversation, not towards the Lord vertically, but horizontally it's used as people speak to one another. And so here are these complainers in Malachi's day, and they're not coming directly to God and saying, God, you know, you're wicked, you're unrighteous. They're talking about the Lord, so to speak, behind his back. They're complaining to one another. They gather and they criticize the Lord's, what they consider to be unfaithfulness. Now, please understand, he's not describing some rabble-rouser standing in front of the congregation. He's talking here about the congregation at large, and it's a conversational cancer. It's destructive to the people, and it's hurtful to any church when these things begin to unfold. Why? Because we don't really believe God, that he is the God that he has revealed himself to be in Scripture bringing it into the New Testament, we don't believe in God's providence. What Romans 8.28 affirms, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That's a promise to those who are the called. It looks like a verb in the NAS and the King James, they render it beautifully with the adjective the called. That is, this is not a wholesale promise, as people often quote it loosely, not directly, that anyone can claim it. This is a promise that God gives to his people, that nothing happens in your life or mine that is accidental, that God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's why the scripture affirms in 1 Thessalonians 5, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you give thanks in all circumstances, or in everything you give thanks. Now, we've seen already in the book of Malachi that there is more than one way to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And people sometimes are proud that they don't curse or swear. But Malachi, like many Old Testament passages, describe people using God's name in vain when they don't live up to the name that they say they profess. And I can say that certainly grumblers and complainers would fit into that category. And so we've seen already how God uses uh, words as something that can really bother him and upset him. He actually does it three times in the book of Malachi. Three times he accuses the people of offending him with their speech. In the opening chapter, when they question God's love. Then in Malachi 2, when they question God's justice. And now here in this third chapter, whether they, they question whether or not it's really a good thing to serve God. So there's the charge by God, there's the response of the people. Point C, there's Malachi's defense of the charge. I want you to think about Malachi's defense of the charge. Let's read uh, verse 14 very carefully. You have said it is vain. Uh, The NAS 2020 says, you have said it's pointless to serve God. And what profit or what benefit is it that we have kept his charge? 
and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. These people were speaking arrogantly against God. And again, you might paraphrase verse 14, what profit is it that we've really kept the commandments of the Lord? They're saying, in essence, it doesn't pay to serve the Lord. It's not really profitable. It's not really beneficial. In fact, it's a colossal waste of time. That's the way pagans speak. That's not the way the covenant people of God are to think. There's a very similar parallel in the prophet Isaiah. Let me read to you Isaiah 58 and verse 3 when the people ask this question. They say to the Lord, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Nothing wrong with fasting. It's a form of humbling yourself before God, and the New Testament continues to teach it. Not if you fast, but Jesus said when you fast. He assumes that believers will fast. But the problem was is that their fast was done out of the wrong kind of attitude. He has just said in verse 14, we walked in mourning. That is, they, they donned themselves with sackcloth and ash, and God, you don't even notice. But like the people in Isaiah's day, they were religious outwardly, but inwardly their heart was not right. So Isaiah goes on to say, God will say to the people, is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Malachi and Isaiah are both underscoring that these people humbled themselves outwardly, but not inwardly. God didn't have any problem with them fasting. The problem is that while they're fasting, they're dealing wickedly with their fellow man. And so they come with their crocodile tears, and God is not impressed. And the moment a believer begins to complain, he can jump through all the religious hoops, come to church, serve in some capacity, give his tithe. But the Lord is not pleased with such sacrifices. And so notice their argument here in verse 15. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Now that's an interesting contrast to what we studied last time in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, where God tells the people to test him. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Verse 15 seems to be the people's deliberate response to God's call to test him. Look, we, we, we've tested you, and look at the way you're treating us, Lord. God challenged them to test him and see if he would not open the windows of heaven. Well, we're testing you, Lord. We're serving of course, they robbed him and stole from him, but they were still jumping through a lot of religious hoops, but it didn't seem to benefit. He said, so now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they test God and escape. Look what they're doing. They're testing you, God, and you don't do anything in their arrogance, in their sin, in their wickedness. 
but you don't do anything. We're looking around, Lord, and it seems like the crowd that's really prospering is not us, but the wicked unbelievers around us. And so not only are the doers of wickedness built up, they're, they're prospering, but they test God and God takes no notice. They escape. They're saying, in essence, a person can live in sin and God won't do anything about it. And people think that way today. I can live in immorality. God won't do anything. Someone carrying a sign in the pride parade in Atlanta said, if God's against gays, then strike me dead. You put God to the test. But not the way these folks were doing. So Malachi 3.12, God promised Israel that they test me. And it may look like I'm not doing anything. But as we'll see before we're done, God will say, just wait and see. And so that's the complaint of the unfaithful here in verses 13 through 15. Second there in your outline, I want us to see the communion of the faithful, the communion of the faithful. I love this passage of Scripture, these verses that follow. In some respects, they're some of the most encouraging verses to me in my 45-plus years of ministry. I've come to them many times. And God here uses Malachi to underscore three ways in which he's going to remember his people that he will show us that it pays to serve God. Look now, if you will, at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Now, you might want to circle the very first word in the verse, then. God is drawing a distinction between this mass of people in Malachi's day who said, it doesn't pay to serve the Lord, proof positive, look at the pagans, they test you, they're arrogant, and you don't do anything about it. And so now he's describing a different group of people than those who feared the Lord, those who spoke to one another, those who gave attention to what God said, and God heard what they said, and he wrote it in his book. And by the way, God has always had a remnant of people. No matter how dark the days may become, God will always have his remnant until Jesus comes back. That was true in the Old Testament time, and it is true in our day. Remember when Elijah was up there on top of Mount Carmel and he dealt with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah and God used him and he brought fire down from heaven and destroyed them. And then he goes off almost seemingly depressed and he says to the Lord in 1 Kings 19.14, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He thought he was all alone, but you know better. God always has his remnant. It was true in the old covenant. It's true even in this day amongst Jewish people. We have a Jewish believer in our service here this morning. There's an estimated 300,000 Jewish believers in the United States. Some will say that there's a million worldwide. I don't know that it's that large. 
But I do know God has always had His remnant of believing Jews who followed Jesus. And God said to Elijah in response, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed Him. Elijah, you're not alone. There are actually 7,000 faithful people who are living for me, 7,000 men and women of character who have refused to bow the knee to Baal. You're not alone. And by the way, Paul quotes this in Romans 11 to show that there'll always be a remnant of Jewish people. In Romans 9, 10, 11, in the ninth chapter, he deals with Israel's election, how God chose them out of all the nations of the world. Doesn't mean that every Jew will go to heaven. We just saw those who were swallowed up alive into Sheol. A Jew in the Old Testament had to believe in the Lord. He had to believe in the promises of God. Of course, they looked forward to Messiah. We look back at the Messiah who has come. But even in Paul's day, there was a remnant of believing Jews. And Paul reminds them in the 10th chapter, not just of their election, but their current rejection, for the same reason most Gentiles are in unbelief because they're self-righteous. And then in the 11th chapter of their future restoration, but God has a remnant today, a remnant of believing Jews just as he had a remnant in Elijah's day. And so now he's going to focus on this remnant of people who are in contradistinction to the grumblers and the murmurs that Malachi has been addressing. And he'll underscore here, notice I have an underline in my Bible, a book of remembrance. One of God's angels is inscribing truth in a book of remembrance, not because God is forgetful, he's omniscient, God has an angel of God write this down. Why? So that you know that he knows, that he pays attention. And so there are three truths worth noting about these people in terms of their fellowship and what God remembers and why he's recording what he does. First, God remembers your character. God remembers your character. Notice, please, twice over here in verse 16 that the prophet Malachi refers to those who feared the Lord. Notice, those who, then those who feared the Lord, that word feared, notice what tense is it? Look at the text. It's a past tense. By the way, the tense is every word, every jot, every tittle is inspired. Jesus gave an argument for, his, for the doctrine of the resurrection on the tense of a verb. He said to the Pharisees, it's not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am. And so pay attention to the tenses. It's important. Then those who feared the Lord, that's a past tense, spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before them for those who fear the Lord. Now notice a present tense. Those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Because it was their habit, this remnant in the past, it is their character in the present. They go on to fear the Lord. And I suppose there's no greater mark of godliness than a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who fears the Lord. When the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans describes those who are in the depths of depravity, he quotes a number of Old Testament passages, and in Romans 3.18, he speaks of these with a depraved mind, and he says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Unfortunately, we live in a generation where men fear everything but God. We're not a generation that is ashamed of sin any longer. We boast about it. We advertise it. We boast in our sin. 
And we don't really fear God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Listen to what Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then just a few verses later, he'll say in Proverbs 1.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's the beginning. It's the ABCs. It's the elementary school of truth is to fear God. And of course, Solomon, who writes this, when he comes to the end of his life, he takes the wisdom that God has given, and from his failure, he writes in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. When God, in the eighth chapter of Proverbs, personifies wisdom, he writes, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Wisdom is speaking. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And if you have a holy hatred for what God hates, then you fear the Lord. But if you are entertaining yourself, as most so-called evangelical Christians are doing today, if you're entertaining yourself on what God hates, then you don't really fear the Lord. And so if you remember when Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, he deals with both sides of the equation, that on the one hand, we, we follow the Lord because we love him. We love him because he first loved us, John will say. But we also love the Lord and we follow him because we fear the Lord. Listen to these words in 1 Peter 1.17. And if you address as father, Abba, that's a term of tenderness, of relationship. And if you've been born again, then the Spirit cries out in your heart, Abba, Father. There's a new filial relationship in prayer that you didn't know before you were saved. And if you address his Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. And by the way, that's one of the reasons when you pray, you shouldn't just say, Lord. You should say, Father. He taught us to pray, our Father because that's a privileged term that we are given as born-again believers. I'm not saying it's wrong to say, Lord, but if that's your modus operandi, then you're out of balance. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your stay upon the earth. So because of this present aspect of God's divine discipline and this future evaluation that even every believer will face at the Bema, at what we call the judgment of the just, we walk in fear. In quoting Proverbs 3, the writer of the Hebrews, by the way, uh, there are 31 chapters in Proverbs, and when the kids come in, I will ask them, are you reading the book of Proverbs? And sometimes, most of the time, they'll say no. Some will say yes. And I'll say, how many chapters are there in Proverbs? And they'll say, well, uh, I don't know. I'll say well, 31. And what's today's date? December 3rd. So what chapter should you read? And they'll say Proverbs 3. Some of you read this this morning. It's quoted in Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And then he adds, but if you are without discipline, of which all true believers, all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did your father ever discipline you growing up? I was one of eight children. My dad had perfected the process. 
That's what he's writing about here. He's saying that God is one who disciplines his own. And so conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to let us sit in rebellion. I know sometimes I meet people who say, well, I'm born again, and God understands that I sleep with my girlfriend, but him and I have an arrangement, and he knows that, he, that everything's okay. And there's no discipline. I would just say to such a person who thinks that way, if there's no discipline, you've created in your mind a false sense of security. If you really know Jesus and you're living in rebellion, and understand not all discipline is at a woodshed. Some discipline that you administer to your children is not because they've been bad, but because you're training them and shaping them to go further. But if you're living in open rebellion, it either means you're headed towards the woodshed or you're headed towards hell, but there's really no in-between. Look, when I meet my Father in heaven, I don't want to see his frown. I want to see his smile. And some believers think, well, God's just going to throw open the pearly gates and say, come on in, son, welcome home. So glad to see you. The real question is, will you be glad to see your Lord? Or will you shrink back in shame? Now, please understand, the kind of fear the Bible is referring to is not the cringing fear that a slave might have towards an unjust master. Listen to what John says in 1 John 4, By this, love is perfected with us, that we have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. The kind of fear, again, is not the cringing fear of a slave towards his master, but it's the loving reverence a child might have towards his father whom he loves. So you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And in view of the fact that our Father disciplines His children today, in view of the fact that someday God will evaluate not my sin, but my service for Him at the judgment seat of Christ, then we should conduct our lives wisely in fear. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is why God remembered this remnant in Malachi's day. But not only does God remember your character, God remembers your praise. Point B there in your outline. God remembers your praise. Now, you will notice at the end of verse 16 that these people are described in two ways. First, he describes them as those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. The word fear is kashab in Hebrew. It means to esteem or those who honored his name. Uh, another translation says those who had high regard for his name. And it's a word that means to think or to acknowledge. The point is, is that this remnant of God who Malachi is now addressing in contradistinction to the rest of the group, who feared the Lord, they honored his name. And one aspect of that is to esteem his name. The name of God, again, as we've seen, refers to who God is as many as received him, that is to those who believe in his name, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. To them he's given the right to become children of God. But here in verse 16, he's describing this remnant who value God's name. Uh, they gave, and notice how God responds, the Lord gave attention and heard it. 
God was watching. They esteemed, they honored the name of God. They spoke highly of his name by their life and by their words. This is in contradistinction to the way the prophet said the people in Jesus' day would treat him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one, who did men, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. But here God hears their praise, he hears their esteem, and he writes it down. He writes it down in his book of remembrance. And it's a reminder to us, as we'll see, that the things, the praise that God writes down is not just what you're doing here, though he sees that. And it's important that you worship God in a right heart. Paul tells us the angels who are here, our congregation is a lot bigger this morning than you realize. There are angels, Paul says, that are watching at every meeting of the people of God. They learn from us. But it's more than just the praise that you offer here. It's also your lifestyle. Remember, while Malachi gives a detailed account of their sins. Again, we've seen their disobedience, their unbelief about God's love, the defective kinds of sacrifices they offered. They were teaching error. They were being unfaithful to their wives. They were stealing tithes. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They said, it's futile to serve God. God writes it down. Occasionally, someone will call on the Bible line and they'll say, I heard this sermon where you said that God had a library. And someone called in and I said, well, just tell them to hold their horses. I'll address it. And so let me address it for a second. Not only does God have his 66 books, he doesn't have 72 or 80 books. There's only 66 books that God inspired. And if you don't know why we got the canon of Scripture that we have and why we have less books than our Roman Catholics friends and less books than the Orthodox have, then go to the course on the canonicity of Scripture that we offer at the Institute of Biblical Studies. But apart from God's 66 books, there's a number of other books within those 66 books that God tells us about. For instance, is the book of the living. It's underscored in Exodus 32 and in Psalm 69. Remember Moses when he's pleading with the Lord, he said, God blot me out of your book. He's not talking about the book of eternal redemption. He's saying, God, kill me. If it, if it means killing me to save the people, I'm willing to die for them. Then there's the book of tears that Isaiah 56 and verse 8. God sees your righteous tears. He bottles them up is the picturesque word he gives us. He, he writes them in his book. There's the book of remembrance that we're looking at this morning from Malachi 3 and verse 14. There's the book of deeds. It's actually books of deeds that Daniel 7 and Revelation 20 speak of. It's the book where all the deeds of all the unrighteous of all time are written down. And at that great judgment called the great white throne judgment where only unbelievers are present, Paul reminds us in Romans 3 and verse 20, their mouths will be shut. No one will have any excuses to make. The books will prove that they were true unbelievers. Then there's the book of days, Psalm 139, that King David writes. The days that were ordained for us, even before there was yet one, were written in his book. And then there's the book of life, also called the book of the Lamb. Revelation 3, Revelation 13, Revelation 20. You want to make sure that your name is written in that book. 
Because the only people who will see the inside of heaven have their name inscribed in that book. So several places in Scripture, God refers to one of his books. And obviously, in his infinite knowledge, he doesn't need to write it down, but he writes it down again so that you know that he knows. And so Malachi would have the people to understand, this remnant, who are serving God faithfully, that God is recording their faithfulness. God has a book of remembrance, and they could easily relate to that, because remember, Persia is ruling at this point, and Persian kings would record the right, the, the deeds of good people who did things for the king's kingdom, and they would record the deeds of evil that they did. If you remember, one night the king can't sleep, and he calls his servant to read from the king's annals, and what does he read? He reads of a man named Malachi who saved the king's kingdom. And so these Jewish people understood the picture that is given here. And again, when God looks at your service, he sees everything you do. And look, if you get upset because I don't give you a pat on the back, there's too many people to give a pat on the back to. But that's the wrong motivation. If you're looking for my praise then you're looking for the praise of men. You have to serve the Lord. And I see people sometimes who get all bent out of shape and they stop serving because they say, I'm not appreciated. Well, who are you serving? The writer, the Hebrews, during very difficult times to be a, a Jew confessing Jesus is Messiah, he reminds them, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. God remembers. He remembers your character. He remembers your praise. Third, God remembers your fellowship. God remembers your fellowship. Look further now, if you will, at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and the book of remembrance was written down before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And once again, this important adverb, then, He's underscoring a distinct difference between the community of the corrupt and this remnant community. Many of these are covered over in religion, but their minds are a million miles away. Jesus underscored this of the religious leaders of his day. And he quotes the Old Testament. He says, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is not in it. And so he is just saying here, listen, there's a, there's a logical occurrence here between verses 15 and 16. He's saying then or yet or because of it. He's showing a relationship here between the two that unlike this religious crowd who say it doesn't pay to serve God, the Lord is saying it does pay to serve God and I'm recording everything that you do. God is the silent witness. So on the one hand, you've got this religious grumbling crowd and on the other hand, you have this crowd that is serving the Lord in spite of what seemingly seems to be unjust circumstances. And God is watching. God is writing. Now think about this. The Scripture commands us to do what they're doing. What are they doing? They spoke to one another. You know what we call that? We call that koinonia. We call it fellowship. In Hebrews 10, it says, consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. That takes thought. That takes assembling beyond a large group meeting like this. 
This large group meeting, the worship service in the New Testament church was never designed to get to know your and to build a best friendship. It was for corporate worship. But they had churches within the church. And we do that, of course, through a number of ways. Some of you have never attended an adult Bible fellowship, and you've missed out. You've missed out God's people sharing with one another and sharing their joys and their heartaches and their needs. These people spoke to one another. Some of you women have never been a part of the woman's life ministry. Look, I don't care how you do it, but there's a clear command in Scripture is the older generation is to teach the next generation. And God has given us a facility in which to do that. And I see some of these older women who are engaged with the next generation, and they meet in these small groups, and they listen to them, and as they pour out their hearts and their struggles and their joys and their heartaches, and they minister to them. Some of you come for the preaching of the word, and that's good. But somehow your involvement needs to go further. And I would say, if this is a foreign concept to you, start with the discovery class. But eventually, get involved. Listen to this command. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some. And of course, their habit, their reason for not assembling was persecution. What's our reason? I want to sleep in. For them, as you know, you know the book of Hebrews, they're getting beaten up. Not to the point of death yet, but they were being beaten up. Their businesses were being forsaken. They were being treated like scum. Better to hide out. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ's return. While no man knows the day or the hour, we can know the season. God's super sign is Israel back in the land, gathering the Jewish people. Even this current conflict, Jewish people in the United States are now leaving America because they feel unsafe. And while the Jewish people have always been hated, at the end of time, there's going to be a global hatred. I believe we're seeing a new expression of it like we've never seen before. Jerusalem will become like a burdensome stone, the prophet says. I'm going to address that in, in January, God willing. But as we see the day drawing near, all the more should we be engaged with one another because we need each other. So the Lord says here to his recording angel, write down their character. Write down their praise. Write down their fellowship of these who don't complain and grumble. Write it down in my book of remembrance because someday God is going to reward them. I suppose in the broadest sense, there's just three books. There's the book of Revelation, the 666 books we call the Bible. There's the book of Redemption, the Lamb's book of life, the name of every person who will ever be saved. But then there's this book of remembrance where God observes and records the acts of his people. Jesus said a man can't even give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name and it not being acknowledged. So God sees those who serve. He sees some of you who get here early every week. He sees those who sit soaked and sour and have no intention of serving anywhere. Never will. You should come to the next in the series that we're going to do on basic discipleship, and you shouldn't miss one of those five weeks. 
I don't want you to have regrets at the judgment of the just. I want the Lord to say to you as I want Him to say to me, well done, thy good and faithful servant. God observes our character. He observes our praise. He observes our words. He observes our service. Third and finally, beyond the complaint of the unfaithful and the communion of the faithful, now we go one step further into the commendation of the Lord, the commendation of the Lord. We read now in verse 17, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. God's commendation is seen first in that he underscores we are special to the Lord. Point A there in your outline, we are special to the Lord. Here is a tiny remnant of people who fellowship with God, with God's people who fear the Lord. Verse 16 pictures their attitude towards God, and now verse 17 pictures God's attitude towards them. Did you see that? They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. Now, there are many terms that God uses to describe his children. We're called saints, we're called servants, we're called sons, we're called witnesses, we're called the called, we're called uh, the chosen, we're called beloved, we're called ambassadors, but I love this one. God refers to his people as my own possession. The ESV renders the Hebrew, my treasured possession. The New Century says, my very own. The RSV says, my special possession. And if you have the New American Standard with the marginal reading, if you come to a meet the pastor, you'll get one with those marginal notes that gives sometimes a, a more literal or an optional way in which to translate the Hebrew because there's not always one way. Out in the margin, it says, my special treasure. Now, he uses a Hebrew noun that is found six other times in the Old Testament, and it's used to describe of a special, wonderful treasure that one, one possesses. And a king would have such a treasure. On the one hand, he owned everything in his kingdom. He owned all the land. He owned every farm. He owned every coin. But then he kept a treasure chest. It was called in Hebrew a segula. And in that segula, in that little treasure chest, and that's the word that's used here, that's translated my special possession. It's one word in Hebrew. It's possessive. It's genitive. God's segula. And that king would have this treasure chest where out of everything he owned in his kingdom, these were his most precious possessions. Audrey and I had been in love for a long time. As soon as I saw her, I knew I wanted to marry her. As I listened to her heart that night, and her share about her love for Christ, we went on our first date in September. We got engaged in November, and we were married in January. And after we, in June, <laughs> after we were engaged, we went down to Best Products there in uh, Durham, North Carolina. I was only 23 years old. And I knew I was supposed to buy a ring for her. I didn't know a whole lot, but I knew that. And I'd never bought anything for a woman in my whole life except for my mother. And so the salesman brought out all these diamonds. Of course, gold had reached a historic high in our history's, uh, in our nation's history at the time. It was over $800 an ounce. Now, that's small compared to today, I suppose. But it had always been about $150, $200 an ounce. Now it was $800 an ounce. 
I was going to spend as much in the gold band as I was going to in the diamond. And he brought all these diamonds, and they were just way beyond my reach. So he brought out this old diamond. It was a third of a carat. He said, now, to your eye, you won't see it, but there's actually a flaw in this diamond. Only a trained eye like mine can see it. But it's a beautiful stone. And my wife said, Carl, I think it's beautiful. I said, I'll take it. And when I went to pick it up, I uh, proposed to her all over again. We went to the chapel of the cross there in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I was a campus pastor. I would often go there to pray. In fact, it was in that little chapel. I met an Episcopal priest with fear and trembling. And he was 28, I was 23. I backed into my collar. He walked into his. I, I didn't have one like his. And I shared the gospel, and he received Christ as his Lord, and he became the archbishop of the North American Anglican Church. In that little precious room, we would often pray in that church. And I got down on my knees, and I offered her that diamond, and she was thrilled to receive it. On our 10th anniversary, we were leaving Dallas, Texas and driving here for me to become the pastor of this church. And I said to her, Audrey, I, I, I want to get you a nicer diamond. I've got a little money in savings now, and I, I think I need to get you a nicer diamond. She said, you're not going to replace this one. This one is special to me. I might buy her another gift. I've been thinking about buying her a new chainsaw or hunting rifle. But, but I could never replace her sugala. And that's the term that God uses to describe us. My special treasure. My special jewels, depending on your rendering. There's a great hymn. I love it. It's entitled, When He Cometh. And it's based on Malachi 3.17. We don't really sing it anymore. When he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, all his jewels, precious jewels, his loved and his own, like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning, they shall shine in their beauty, bright gems for his crown. He will gather, he will gather the gems for his kingdom. All the pure ones, all the bright ones, his loved and his own, like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning, they shall shine in their beauty, bright gems for his crown. Little children, little children who love their Redeemer are their jewels, precious jewels, his loved and his own. Like the stars of the morning, his bright crown adorning, they shall shine in their beauty, bright gems for his crown. In Malachi's words, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day I prepare my own possession, my own special juice. Listen, if you are saved, if you are one that fears the Lord, who esteems his name, then you are his special possession. So we are special to the Lord. Secondly, I want you to see we are spared by the Lord. We are spared by the Lord. Notice now, if you will, verses 17 and 18. God promises, and I will spare them. Or you could render it, have pity on them, have compassion on them. As a man spares his own son who serves him, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So God is going to make a distinction between those 
who serve the Lord and those who don't, between those who say it pays to serve the Lord and those who say it does not pay to serve the Lord. And God says, I will spare them. Sometimes you ask a person, are you saved? And occasionally they'll say, saved from what? God is talking about sparing his people from the judgment that is yet to come. Now, in my Hebrew Bible that I've been reading as I have worked through Malachi, there's just three chapters. It's the same four chapters we have, but they divide it a little bit differently. But in this particular division, that's helpful because the flow of thought continues. In 4.1, which is a continuation of 3 in the Hebrew Bible, in Malachi 4.1, the flow of thought continues when God says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So Malachi, here in verses 17 and 18, is speaking to the fact that God will spare his people from judgment in the same way that a man spares his son. In fact, it's even stronger. As a father spares his son who serves him, a good son. In fact, this word here, serves, is translated in Exodus and a number of other places based on the context as worship. You can't, you can't divorce service from worship. And that's why I say worship is not just what we do when we gather together, though that's one aspect of it. Your life is to be a living sacrifice. And so notice the flow of thought here from verse 17 to verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. You will again, this is a future tense, looking to the day of judgment between the righteous who serves and the wicked who don't serve. Now, you're not saved by service. You're not saved by worship. But if you are saved, you will serve. You will worship God, which tells me two truths about worship, that it's more than just an emotional expression of our heart when we gather together, but it's all that we do. And God will distinguish in the future clear-cut distinctions between the righteous, what we would call the saved, the justified, and the unrighteous, those who are unforgiven. And God does this all the way through Scripture. In Genesis chapter 6, we find Noah, his family of eight, who are distinguished as the righteous from the rest of the world that perishes in the great flood. We see it in Genesis 19, where God distinguishes Noah and his two daughters from the rest of the people who perish in Sodom and Gomorrah. At the Passover, we see God deliver his people in that small group of believing Egyptians who also applied the Passover truth and how God distinguished them from the rest of godless Egypt. All of these events are just a picture of the future. In Daniel 12, he says this, "...and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt." Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who've died, so that you may not grieve as the rest who do not have hope. You grieve as a believer, but you don't have to grieve like a pagan who has no genuine hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's our confession of faith. Even so, God will bring with him, with him from where? With him from heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Your loved one who's gone home to Jesus is with him. 
He is in God's presence, not in His resurrected body, some kind of a temporary body like Moses and Elijah had. They're not even raised yet. They're physical bodies. That resurrection we studied in our prophetic series happens at the end of the tribulation. That's Daniel 12, 1 and 2. But God will bring with Him departed spirits, those who've gone home. And notice what He says. Uh, He will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, because this is what Jesus taught. Where did He teach it? I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, where's Jesus in heaven? You may be also. That's why the rapture happens first. We go to heaven and we come back to the earth. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's the essence of their question. If you know 1 Thessalonians, they didn't doubt the doctrine of the resurrection. What they wondered about was what would happen if you had already died before Jesus returns? Would you miss the kingdom? And Paul wants to underscore, actually not. The first ones to come out of the grave are those who are already home with Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will come out first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we'll be with each other forever. If you don't think it pays to serve God, just remember, it's not over yet. Jesus is coming again. This one who was born of a virgin, who fed thousands of people, performed dozens of miracles, walked in the water, stilled the storm, died on a cross, was raised from the dead, is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He will literally, actually, physically come for all judgment has been entrusted to the Son. And when He comes, He will come with a shout and He will distinguish the righteous from the unrighteous, those who serve the Lord and those who don't. Only the saved will be gathered to heaven and the unrighteous will be left behind. That's what Malachi is underscoring. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. Now, how can we apply this passage? Several truths jump out at me. First, God rewards those who are his. God rewards those who are his. We need to hear what Malachi is saying here. Remember, we live in self-righteous, hedonistic America where people are ignoring God more and more. Then those who feared the Lord, verse 16 said, spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it and wrote it in the book of remembrance. You know what that means? It means that this little cluster of people gathered here today when 80% of America is in church nowhere, God wrote it down. As we gather in fellowship around God's Son, God writes it down. As we're involved in speaking about the Lord, God writes it down. As we're involved in serving the saints, God writes it down. He observes it all and he writes it in his book of remembrance. But not only does God reward those who are his, secondly, God knows those who are his. He distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. Paul said it this way to Timothy, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Malachi and Paul and every single book in the Bible reminds us that God is a God of love, but God is a God of justice. And God will judge sin. 
And God knows those who are His. Are you one of His? Or do you just say you are? There's a vast multitude of people who say they are. But the Lord does not acknowledge them as His. Because it's pseudo-faith. It's fake faith. It's not real faith. But there's coming a day when God will distinguish between the one who serves and the one who does not. Because service is a byproduct of conversion. And then you will know it pays to serve the Lord. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp under our feet and a light under our path. Thank you that in the difficult days that we live in, where your people are becoming more and more peculiar in a nation and in a world that no longer acknowledges you, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you always have your remnant of those who know you and love you. I pray today, Father, for someone here who's never called upon Jesus in faith. Thank you that they can be saved today in a moment's time because salvation is not earned. You said the gift of God is eternal life. My friend, as your head is bowed, as your eye is closed, if you're willing to admit that your sin is wrong, that it needs to be forgiven and changed, then put your faith where God put your sin on Christ, the sinless substitute who bore your judgment and demonstrated that He is Lord when God raised Him from the dead. Call upon Him for whoever will Come, will be saved. Whoever will call on his name will be saved. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, Father, for the rest of us, thank you that you write everything down. Thank you that when we have failed, that you're ready and willing to cleanse us, to pick us up, that our fellowship might be reestablished, that our intimacy might once again become real. Thank you that in this godless day that you help us, that there is no temptation that is given to us, that you are not faithful to meet us in the midst of that temptation. So help us to make right choices with our mind, for you said as a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. And help us to do that consistently, not just to fear you in the past, but to fear you as a way of life. That when you open up the book of remembrance, There'll be a life of consistency for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here, you're in Graniteville, you're in Grays, and there's a decision you need to make. Maybe you've received Jesus as Lord. You've never made that public. I want to invite you during this time to step out from where you are and to meet that person there or here. Maybe you've been saved, but you haven't been baptized, or you're saved and baptized, but you're not a member of a Bible-believing church. Here's your opportunity right now. So step out now and meet me here in the front.